Tucker Carlson debuted his newest very scary phrase last night, and surprise, surprise, it was originally coined by a rabid white nationalist. The term is anarcho-tyranny, because if there's one thing anarchists love, it's tyranny. Tucker used this phrase to talk about the Trump indictment. You get state-sponsored anarchy accompanied by political tyranny. You gotta love state-sponsored anarchy. Without the state, you've just got sparkling chaos. Now, Tucker is obviously counting on his viewers to not think about it too hard, but he's also hoping that the origins of the phrase work as a dog whistle for his far-right viewers. Because as dumb as the term anarcho-tyranny is, it originates from a prominent white nationalist writer named Sam Francis. He's been described as the philosopher king of the far-right. Want to guess what got him all riled up? Seatbelt laws. Francis rants about crack houses and gun control, but the staying power was in that phrase at the top. Anarcho-tyranny. Indeed, it seems to be little noticed that ever since 1968, no Republican candidate has won a presidential election without at some point during his campaign emitting some kind of signal however coded or masked, that communicated to white voters that he was really on their side and understood the reality of racial conflict in the United States. In 1968 itself, Richard Nixon won the election essentially by stealing the rhetoric and issues of George Wallace on forced busing and law and order at a time when law and order rather clearly meant willingness to enforce the law against mainly black urban rioters and criminals. If Nixon himself did not always make that message clear, his running mate Spiro Agnew certainly did. Similarly, in 1980, Ronald Reagan beat the drum about the welfare queen and earned sufficient hatred of blacks that when he was shot in 1981, many blacks actually celebrated. In 1988, George Bush's campaign ran the famous Willie Horton ads, careful to make sure that by displaying Horton's picture, that viewers knew the convict was not just a paroled rapist, but a black paroled rapist. The Republican candidates who sent these signals won the elections. Yeah, I let that play a little long because the, the message that he is delivering in that clip is insane. It's basically just saying, we know our base is extremely racist and all of all of the people running as conservatives are going to lose unless they play into that. He calls out the dog whistles as positive things. And he says, we need to be saying this up front to the white grievance demographic. And he also says something that I agree with, which is that Bill Clinton was also using these dog whistles. We had we had Joseph Biden saying the the dog whistle of the welfare queens in the 80s. Well, I remember, uh, I mean, it didn't work for her. Well, it did work for her because it got her husband elected at the time, but Hillary Clinton and the, the super predators. Remember when she was yeah. talking about teenage teenage black children? Oh, absolutely. During, I don't know if it was, it was I think it was Clinton's uh, re-election campaign. The crime bill was passed by Clinton and it was the crowning achievement, at least to him at the time, of Joe Biden. And we only now see it for what it was, which was a police state crackdown in policy in federal government that was rejected several times before by Reagan. 
Reagan thought it was too reactionary and too right wing. All right, we got a little ahead of ourselves and it's my fault. <laughs> Jules, lead us in. Welcome to Wet Wired. I'm Julian Paul Butt. I'm Sean Andes. The darling child of reactionaries has been cast out of the foxhole. Tucker Carlson is looking for work and he might be soon busking on the corner of Twitter. <laughs> Once he commanded the most watched show on cable TV, he used his enormous platform to broadcast little-known neo-Nazi and white supremacist ideas repackaged in an advertiser-friendly format. As much as Tucker's on-air cheerleading for Donald Trump helped him rise to the top of the airwaves, the Trump ride had a gnarly side and a price that had to be paid. Promoting Trump's Stop the Steal in public while shit-talking him in private helped cost Fox $787.5 million American dollars. Tucker was well-known in circles that track right-wing extremism for introducing dog, wills, dog whistles and obscure white supremacist terms into the mainstream lexicon. These words occasionally gave away his source material. One phrase caught my attention in his April 4th show not long before he got the boot, which was anarcho-tyranny. This word comes from only one person, a white supremacist from the 90s, Samuel Todd Francis. Sam tells us what isn't being said out loud and gives us a creepily prescient glimpse into the recent trends of the right wing. ...against Musa Dayara, but he had already made the point very clear to everyone. In our new Soros-inspired justice system, decent people are the criminals, while the criminals are now a protected class. Here's how it works. The people in charge unleash chaos in our cities, but if you dare to protect yourself or your family from that chaos, you wind up in handcuffs. What is this? Well, the name of this system of governance is anarcho-tyranny. You get state-sponsored anarchy accompanied by political tyranny. Since taking office, Bragg has done his best to increase the anarchy. He's increased the number of felony charges his office drops by nearly 40%. That includes almost half of all drunk driving charges. It's no longer really a crime to drive drunk in New York City. That case that he talks about when he leads into this clip where he's talking about anarcho-tyranny is about a, a guy who's a parking lot attendant in, in New York City. He intervened when he saw somebody messing around with some cars in the lot that he was watching. And the guy pulled a gun, yeah. ended up shooting him, and then they wrestled for the gun. And then and then the the parking lot attendant ended up shooting the the, the man that had shot him with his own gun. So they both got arrested until until yeah. investigators could sort it out. And then but the next the like the very next day, I think the charges were dropped against the parking lot attendant once ever, once all the stories were cleared up. Now, there was a huge public outcry in the meantime, but he makes it seem like they were they would have prosecuted him and put him in jail and let the criminal go free if not for the the outrage. Well, if if not for these liberal wokest elites who are who are controlling the law across the board in some kind of a conspiracy it it's odd that the person was an immigrant but not that odd the the odd part to me is that tucker would would valorize this particular person who is an immigrant but it's not that odd because it plays into something that is a core part of white supremacy narrative of the model minority 
as it's called. This is this is typically referred to with uh, Asian Americans of various sorts, where where you have all sorts of different people who are not white, and you want to make an example of the darker skinned non-white people by heralding certain non-white people being being Asians. And and even some some racists and, and white supremacists consider some Asians to be quasi-white. And they and they have this this odd hierarchy of where Asians fit into white supremacy. I mean we we, we could go on, but the point here being that it's kind of odd that he picks an immigrant based on his politics and his ideology, but it's not that odd because he's basically using it as the model minority. I don't doubt that. I mean, I know that's that's something that's absolutely done, that model minority idea and how that, that gets deployed by white supremacists. In this case, though, I think Tucker is just being an opportunist. He's finding a case where somebody was unjustly arrested. The hardworking immigrant who's defending the parking lot He's shoehorning it. In, he's shoehorning it into his ill-fitting yeah, shoes I mean, he's got, of just wanting to talk about anarcho tyranny. Yeah, exactly. Th- this is this is what people do when they already know what the facts are and how everything is supposed to be working. Then they just look for examples that fit that particular picture. And in this case, it seemed like a good fit if you portray everything just right. But if you don't portray it just right, if you portray it how it actually went, is that. Both people got arrested until the cops sorted it out. Yeah. You know, so yeah, the guy woke up in, ho- in his hospital bed, the parking lot attendant, and, and found himself to be handcuffed. You know, like, but that was until they could figure out what was going on. They didn't know whose gun was who. They didn't, you know, at the time of the arrest. The, you have two men, you have an ambulance show up with police, and you have two people with gunshot wounds. One of them has the gun. Yeah. You know, we don't know what's going on until they start pulling apart the pieces and tugging on those threads. But the, you know, so that's how, that's how a picture can be, can be, uh, or a picture of the events can be lit up in just the right way so that it says what you wanted to say. But the thing that he wanted it to say, this, this idea of anarcho tyranny, this is something that, that we want to talk about right now. It is such a strange, strange term. Anarchist or anarchy, these words are often used to refer to chaos and disorder. When we hear them, it's usually in the context of society falling apart, such as a volcano erupting or a civil war. It's used when the government breaks down, but not when it's cracking down on its enemies. Now, anarcho is an even rarer prefix it almost exclusively it's almost exclusively used by and among anarchists typically it's used as part of a faction of anarchist thought such as anarcho syndicalism anarcho communism anarcha feminism as the senior anarchist correspondent on the show i i i have a duty to make sure i i'm a, i i'm i'm soup wheel i'm a soup wielding colonel in the antifa navy and i need to read the official Sacco and Vincetti PSA. So if you'll forgive me for a moment, Sean, anarchism, (laughs) the way that an anarchist would describe the word is a political and economic philosophy originating in the 19th century. Anarchists 
used the term to mean grassroots, bottom-up social organization. We typically want to replace top-down hierarchies and centralization with decentralized direct democracy. Sometimes it's called stateless democracy, but it prioritizes autonomy and voluntary association as opposed to order by way of coercion. PSA over. <laughs> I, I just think it's adorable that after doing this show for a year and a half, that you still believe in something. <laughs> <laughs> we are nihilist, Lebowski. We believe in nothing. <laughs> Actually, actually, quite relevant to the show. <laughs> Say what you will about the <laughs> the tenets of National Socialism. <laughs> At least it's an ethos. <laughs> At least it's an ethos. <laughs> so uh, up front, we know that we're spending a lot of time on this particular word, but. Yeah. Like you have to just bear with us because we're we are trying to take this somewhere. This is not just us being semantic, although we can do that it too. Totally is that though. <laughs> Some who don't have this anarchist philosophy have applied it in different ways. Applied the word in different ways. They've yeah, applied, the applied the word, applied the, the term anarcho. Yeah, specifically the prefix anarcho, and uh, the people who have done it are edgelord libertarians. That's that's really who anarcho-capitalists are. That's about the only time, though, that you ever hear it outside of the context of anarchists or a particular like flavor of anarchism. You the only time the only other time you hear it is anarcho-capitalism. Yeah, you know, which is if if you think of a you know, there's a Cory Doctorow short story. Um, he uh, he sort of he did a uh, kind of a spin on uh, Mask of the Red Death and. It, it is basically, it's about this, uh, I mean, heavily inspired by actual events, but he did the, he, he, it's about this, um, Silicon Valley billionaire who buys a compound in Arizona and outfits it with, uh, ATVs and automatic rifles and provisions and security system and all this stuff. And then, you know, when, uh, when society falls apart, uh, in, in the sort of William Gibson jackpot sense. As he, George Carlin would say, just plain guys from Montana. He hits the road and heads to the compound with his closest buddies. And, uh, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of USB drives full of Bitcoin, because that's how they think that would be an anarcho capitalist. This is the, the, the natural development of free market capitalism where there are no laws that you cannot pay for. Think of the fucking seasteaders. Think of, think of the, um, just think of sovereign, fucking water world. Sovereign, sovereign, <laughs> yeah. Water world. <laughs> that, that water world is the natural evolution of seasteading. <laughs> and like the, the fucking, uh, the sovereign citizens. I mean, these, these are the, it's the same fucking crowd. Right. Freedom loving Americans, in other words. But we really didn't see that anarcho term until around i mean really fucking spiking and peaking around the late 30s if we're gonna take uh, google books ngram viewer where you can where you can search terms that you see in books and book titles and things like that since the 1800s and it it barely existed before the 30s and it totally spiked and then kind of like did a bunch of up and downs but that 
really, we didn't even see it for the most part until the 20th century as, as a term. So it's such a fucking weird word to see. And that brings us back around to why it's so odd for Sam Francis to use it. So here's his idea of anarcho-tyranny. He first used this term at least as early as 1992. I know our opening clip mentions 1994, but he was probably even using it before 92. But this is the first instance that we can even find. Now, a lot, a lot of other authors have picked up this term along the way, too. This is the, especially more recently. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this episode, why this, why this all caught our, all of this caught our attention so much is that not just this term, but other works of Sam Francis have actually become much more, um, much more widely read among conservatives than they ever used to be. And this, this is also kind of, I mean, we get into this a little bit later, but this also is a, a, a conservative reaction to neoconservatism, which was obviously the, the prevailing idea of conservatism during the George W. Bush years. So these, you know, so-called paleoconservatives of look to somebody like Sam Francis as being an inspiration. This is from his article, Laws to Punish the Innocent, which, Jesus Christ, I mean, what a fucking title. It's anarcho-tyranny. This is <laughs> You Punish the Innocent. <laughs> this is from his article, Laws to Punish the Innocent, preserved on the white supremacist website, VDARE. Under anarcho-tyranny, government fails to enforce the laws and perform the functions it has a legitimate duty to enforce and perform. While it invents laws and functions, it has no legitimate duty to make or carry out. In such utopias of anarcho-tyranny as New York and Washington, government and the munchkins who <laughs> and the munchkins who run it have virtually given up and the any lollipop pretense, guild <laughs> have virtually given up any pretense of enforcing the law against the killers muggers robbers and rapists who haunt the streets in that article he uses the word munchkins up like three or four times it, it's outrageous to even to that it works first off but the to presume that there's a, there's this whole collection of district attorneys and 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 that just go out there and decide like no I I don't I, you know I really don't feel comfortable arresting rapists I you know I know that <laughs> they 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 had a hard life and it was it wasn't they if they had an easier life they wouldn't do that and or if they weren't so poor then the the mugger wouldn't have shot and killed those people on the street and stolen their shoes. That is not how this works in any place. Now, this is, this is the kind of melted brain thinking that would say, listen, trees are a liberal myth. And anybody who believes in trees is clearly part of the conspiracy. Now, police departments do get overburdened. Criminal justice systems are overburdened. But it is almost always to do with them over exercising their responsibilities as law enforcement officers, not underperforming. They're too exuberant in their arrests. Well, you, you know me, Sean, uh, I I've always been an advocate for police. And so if, if there's, if there's one thing that I could say about that, uh, it's that uh, they're, they're so often so well restrained, uh, particularly when it comes to people who are immigrants and uh, people of color. Uh, I, the, I think the history show, all right. I don't know where I'm going with this sarcasm. <laughs> No, keep going. It's it's fa it sounds fantastic. 
Uh, it could get me on the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> well, we already know that the man is ridiculous and he has crazy ideas. But Jules, why don't you tell us who the hell is Sam Francis and what does he have to do with Tucker Carlson? The best intro to Sam comes directly from his fans on the another white supremacist website, Countercurrents, after he died in 2005. Although he died at the age of 57, Sam Francis had two highly distinguished careers, one in the mainstream, the other on the margins. From 1977 until 1981, Sam Francis was a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. From right 1980, the, the Heritage Foundation pops up again. It's mind-boggling to me how often we find that it's the fucking Heritage Foundation again. It's like it's always Blavatsky, but for the right wing. From 1981 to 1986, he was an aide to North Carolina Senator John East. In 1986, he joined the staff of the Washington Times as an editor and columnist. In 1989 and 1990, he received the Distinguished Writing Award for editorial writing from the American Society of Newspaper Editors. Francis's break from the mainstream began gradually as an intellectual parting of the ways. That, that's, that's one way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> another could be that he was just good old-fashioned canceled because he was a white supremacist bigot. Because of his rejection of the neoconservative takeover of the American right, Francis is one of the early advocates of paleoconservatism. Francis also rejected free market and free trade orthodoxy in favor of economic nationalism and protectionism. He defended Southern identity and race realism against the right's rampant embrace of colorblind individualism. He realized that you could not found a serious country on one line from the Declaration of Independence, plus a sentence from Martin Luther King. These interests may have estranged Francis from conservative ink, but they made him an important influence on two intellectual currents that have only grown since his death, national populism and white identity politics. When was this written? This was I, right after his death. So it was like 2005, 2006. In June of 1995, Francis was reprimanded by the Washington Times for a column criticizing the Southern Baptists' apology for slavery. Then in September of that year, he was fired based on, at least in part, on a line from his speech at the first American Renaissance Conference in 1994. American Renaissance Conference and magazine are also white supremacist, uh, is also a white supremacist event and publication. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry, Sean. Uh, correction. I just looked at it. It may have been as recent as 2021 that this eulogy is published, but it's unclear if it was just republished. There you have it. At least possibly white supremacist retconning. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is from his speech at the first American Renaissance Conference in 1994. The civilization that we as whites created in Europe and America could not have developed apart from the genetic endowments of the creating people, nor is there any reason to believe that the civilization can be successfully transmitted to a different people. I couldn't imagine a gnarlier way to say that yeah, Other I know, than right? Repeating like, white power ten times in a row. There, there's no good way of saying that white people are better than everybody else, but this is definitely one of the worst ways of saying that. <laughs> so all of this was busted open, believe it or not, by a young, plucky Dinesh D'Souza. What a fucking yes, the teach. same author of Two Thousand Mules 
and big time stop the steal proponent, Donald Trump pardonee. He was working on a book, oddly enough, titled The End of Racism, while he attended that American Renaissance Conference in 1994. So about a year later, the notes from that book at the, you know, it was getting, it was getting ready to be published. So uh, the publishers were doing a lot of promotion. And part of that was publishing blurbs from the book. So they appeared in a column in the Washington Post in 1995. And it was shortly after that, that Francis got canned from the Washington Times. The American Renaissance Conference, this, this is not any old uh, getting together of a few white people. It's, it's part of a white supremacist magazine and a website started by another frothing at the mouth white supremacist, Jared Taylor, in 1990. I know we're traveling back in time a little bit for this episode. We're, we're really kind of visiting Nixon and Reagan and early Bush and uh, W for a lot of this stuff. But it, it is really fucking interesting to me how a lot of the shit that we're seeing today was exactly what this guy was railing against when the neocons were taking over the Republican Party in the 90s. I mean, you mean, and uh, before. The, you mean a lot of the shit that we're seeing from conservatives now? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. A lot, okay. of, a lot of the shit we're seeing from conservatives now. Francis played a leading role in the foundation of a magazine called the Occidental Quart Quarterly and the white supremacist think tank, the National Policy In Institute. Which, if you've never heard of that before, good for you. <laughs> that's, that's actually a great place to be in, to have never heard of it. But it was last headed by somebody you might have heard from, Richard Spencer. And it's been pretty much dormant since 2020, which is about the time that Richard Spencer got punched in the face. So I'm not saying that punching Nazis solves things. But I haven't heard from the National Policy Institute at all since he got punched. So it could be one of these things. It, it's a really. great punch. <laughs> <laughs> it took down a whole, a whole think tank. <laughs> <laughs> the Occidental Quarterly is a white supremacist. I'm sorry, a white nationalist. It, let me take an aside here. White supremacists often call themselves white nationalists and even differentiate themselves and say, I'm not white supremacist, but they're often okay with white nationalist or some other euphemism, which is bizarre as fuck. Even Sam Francis, who's like, white I don't think, I don't think whites are better, but I think we should have our own country. Yeah, <laughs> and be in charge, and that anybody else in charge is a real fucking problem. Now, if you yeah. ask them why they think they should have their own country then you get back to the white supremacy stuff. It, it is the same thing, but it is important to distinguish when they call themselves white supremacist and when they call themselves white nationalists, because that gives you a clue into what they're thinking about with their ideology. Anyway, this one is a white nationalist magazine published by the Charles Martel Society. One thing. Why about, do they call themselves Charles Martel? That is named after somebody, and I forget who it is. I know who it is. He was the mayor of Paris. Oh, I get it now. I see the connection. So back in like 711 or something like that, 
Oh, he he fought off the Muslims. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. I the, remember the now. Moors had moved into the Iberian Peninsula, and they were continuing to make incursions into west, uh, going eastward uh, into what is now France. And uh, Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, was the mayor of Paris, and he basically he he fought like a completely unreasonably lucky battle against. A, an army with an enormous of of uh, Muslims with an enormous cavalry, and I don't think he had really any horsemen with him to speak of. I mean, he was outnumbered and everything. And anyway, this this particular battle, uh, aside from it being a major hinge point in the history of Western Europe, where you know a hinge point being things could have really gone really swung hard one way or the other. It could it could have been been a very different uh, Middle Ages, basically, because, well, the Europe had a Dark Ages just right around the corner after this event, but there was no Dark Ages in the Muslim world. You know, they, they everything was just cooking. You know, they they, like, they were flourishing the, intellectually. They they yeah. were gathering books from around the world and absolutely knowledge, and there, so things could have been very very different. And you know, over the next few hundred years in Europe, had had the Muslims actually won that battle. But at any rate, this was a white guy fighting off a bunch of brown people. And, and that's I see why they like part. him now. Of course. That's it. And, and, there's, and the tie to, there's, there's the tie to Christian nationalism. And so Charles Martel also, war. Charles Martel also, he is the grandfather of Charlemagne. Oh, of course. He was the founder of this dynasty. I mean, of course they want to draw some sort of spiritual ancestry to this, to that lineage. Okay. All right. I just had to work that out. <laughs> the Occidental Quarterly is, is a sister publication of the Occidental Observer, both from the Charles Martel, Charles, Charles Martel, Charles Martel. No, absolutely the, the, not. The, the Charles Martel Society. Just call him Chuck the Hammer. Chuck the Hammer. <laughs> the 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 sister publication, The Occidental Observer, has become the primary voice for anti-Semitism from far right far right intellectuals, according according to the Anti-Defamation League. That's a that those are those are some big shoes to uh, be walking around in. The the primary voice for anti-Semitism for far right intellectuals. Yeah, no, I mean it's not it's not like a major voice. It's the main one. <laughs> so when we when we when we're fucking weaving these threads together of these organizations, this puts it into context. Now keep in mind, the guy who said the thing, anarcho tyranny, that was later you know, whose word was later used by Tucker, Tucker Carlson, Carlson. <laughs> on the most popular newstainment show. In the United States, <laughs> that same guy who said the word that Tucker Carlson used helped to found the primary voice for anti-Semitism for far right intellectuals. All right. We're just we're just I want to make I want to gather all the threads and just make sure they stay together. This next thread is a throwback to history a bit for some more white supremacy and racism. The history. I was just talking about what happened in the 700s. You're, <laughs> you're saying this is the throwback to history? I, I, recent history. He <laughs> he was a huge influence 
on the Council of Conservative Citizens, which was another white supremacist organization considered a hate group by the SPLC. I mean, the the everything that he's involved in is on the list for the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group. There's oh. a good chance that they're determining who ends up on these lists just by the fact that Sam Francis was part of that. <laughs> he was a chief editor of the council's newsletter, The Citizens Informer, which, if anything, sounds like a fucking Nazi publication. The Citizens Informer does. And that was up to his death in 2005. This is what the SPLC said of the Council of Conservative Citizens. The Council of Conservative Citizens is the modern reincarnation of the old white citizens councils, which were formed in the 1950s and 1960s to battle school desegregation in the South. Created in 1985 from the mailing lists of its predecessor organization, the CCC has evolved into a crudely white supremacist group. So we di- I didn't mention his name before because we kind of glossed over some stuff, but the American Renaissance Magazine and the American Renaissance Convention were both organized and operated by a guy named Jared Taylor. Well, Jared Taylor is also the Council of Conservative Citizens spokesman. It all weaves back together. It all weaves right Everybody, back Everybody's sleeping with each other, really, is what's <laughs> happening. I mean, this is it just, it just, I mean, this it's is just all one in Atlanta and bed. Virginia, basically. They just they just roll over on top of one another if they want some variety. Yeah. Shuffle around. This is also from the SPLC. In the mid-1990s, Francis became chairman of the American Immigration Control Foundation, AICF, a virulent anti-immigrant organization long listed as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. AICF's website suggests that immigrants have, quote, sown the seeds of ethnic strife in America. And that large-scale immigration into America, especially the third world immigration, is a policy rooted in humanistic pride and the worship of mammon, a biblical reference to anti-Christian materialism. So, I mean, where does he stand on immigrants? This whole fucking mammon shit from these people, these (laughs) ultra-capitalists that are like, they they, they think communists are, are in league with Satan. And and then, but that yeah, they still have this fixation on like, oh, it's mammon, you know, like you don't, you, like they're worshiping mammon, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they're spooked by w- witches. I mean, the, but just, to, they, they just, they, they love, they love greed and capitalism and acquiring wealth. And, but for some reason, they, there's a very particular way that it needs to be done because if you don't do it in just the right Christian way of, of, of acquiring wealth, then you're worshiping mammon. Yeah. Oh, obviously you have to do the right kind of acquiring every fucking riches, all the fucking riches available. And his paleo conservatism, which is a, funky fucking term, but it's perfect because they're fucking dinosaurs focuses on isolationism and nativism and identity politics. It's specifically white nationalism and xenophobia. Sam focused all of his hate and anger, not just on all these uh, uh, oppressed groups and marginalized groups, but especially on neoconservatives whom he thought didn't prioritize race and immigration enough. 
And here's right the- because the po- that that's really been his major issue the entire time. He didn't think that the politicians on like Republican politicians, conservative politicians were racist enough. Yeah, you know they didn't really measure up to to his standards of just good old fashioned front porch yelling at the people on the street racism. Instead of invoking a suicidal liberalism and regurgitating the very universalism that has subverted our identity and our sense of solidarity, what we as whites under assault need to do is reassert our identity and our solidarity. And we need to do so in explicitly racial terms through the articulation of a racial consciousness as whites. The reassertion of our solidarity must be expressed in racial terms for two major reasons. In the first place, the attack upon us defines itself in racial terms and seeks through the delegitimization of race for whites and the legitimization of race for non-whites, the dispersion and destruction of our own solidarity, while at the same time consolidating non-white cohesiveness against whites. The historian Isaiah Berlin noted in 1991 that nationalism and racism are the most powerful movements in the world today. And at a time when the self-declared enemies of the white race define themselves in racial terms, only our own definition of ourselves in those terms can meet that challenge. If and when that challenge should triumph and those enemies come to kill us, as the Tutsi people have been slaughtered in Rwanda in the last few weeks, they will do so not because we are Westerners or Americans or Christians or conservatives, or liberals, but because we are white. It is always incredibly suspicious when I hear anybody say the word white as white (laughs) with the H first. It is the most gnarly sounding word in the English language. We can contrast Francis's paleoconservative attitude with this clip from George W. Bush in 2011. What's interesting about our country, if you study history, is that uh, there are some isms that occasionally pop up, pop up. One is isolationism, and it's evil twin protectionism, and it's evil triplet nativism. So if you study the 20s, for example, there was, uh, there was a, an American first policy that said, who cares what happens in Europe? Well, what happened in Europe mattered eventually uh, because of World War II. There was Smoot-Hawley, which was a part of an economic policy, which basically said we don't want trade. In other words, let's throw up barriers. And there was an immigration policy that I think during this period argued we had too many Jews and too many Italians, therefore we should have no immigrants. And my point to you is, is we've been through this kind of uh, period of isolationism, protections of nativism. I'm a little concerned that we may be going through the same period. Uh, I hope that these isms pass. Sam represents the identity politics, nativism, and xenophobia that presaged Trump's MAGA movement. He was talking about the failures of neoconservatives to defeat Obama years before that election was held. Sam spills the beans about the true motivations of conservatives to preserve their power. Here, he talks about conservatives preserving social order, egalitarianism, elites, and he's pissed at 
the elite intelligentsia. In the second place, understanding egalitarianism as the ideology of the system and the elites that run it ought to alter our view of how the system and its elites actually operate. Most elites in history have always had a vested interest in preserving the societies they rule, and that is why most elites have been conservative. The British aristocracy up to the 20th century is a fairly typical example of such an, a conservative elite. But the elite that has come to power in the United States and the Western world in this century actually has a vested interest in managing and manipulating social change, the destruction of the society it rules. Political analyst Kevin Phillips pointed this out in his 1975 book, Mediocracy, which is a study of the emergence of what he calls the new knowledge elite, the members of which approach society from a new vantage point. Change does not threaten the affluent intelligentsia of the post-industrial society the way it threatened the landowners and industrialists of the New Deal. On the contrary, change is as essential to the knowledge sector as inventory turnover is to a merchant or a manufacturer. Change keeps up demand for the product, research, news, theory, and technology. Post-industrialism, a knowledge elite, and accelerated social change appear to go hand in hand. The new knowledge elite does not preserve and protect existing traditions and institutions. On the contrary, far more than previous new classes, the knowledge elite has sought to modify or replace traditional institutions with new relationships and power centers. I mean, really, all we just heard right there is Francis talking about the motivations of true conservatives to maintain their power and domination over everybody else. I mean, he, when he's citing the monarchs, he's just talking about people who are trying to stay in charge. So, of course, they don't want anything to change in society. It's, now, this, you only get that from a dominant social, uh, social hierarchy. They, if you don't have a dominant structure, if you're not a member of this dominant strata, then, then you want everything to change because you're the one that is, you know, is less than or has, less has fewer opportunities. But if you're the one that's in that top strata that controls everything, then, yeah, of course you want everything to stay the same. I, I, I don't I, – he, he, it's so transparent what his motivations are to maintain this domination. Francis really gives us a chance to, to look into what is behind the conservative politics and the conservative ideologies, not only in his, his antagonism towards neocons, but in his telling it like it is, not in a Trump way, Trump is just an idiot, but Francis is saying quite explicitly exactly what these paleoconservatives believe and saying exactly what this is all about in a way that is so frank that we typically don't get a chance to hear what hear this other than in a way that sounds often like a conspiracy theory. Like whenever I, whenever, oh, yeah. when, uh, when they uh, say, when people say, uh, this is the quiet part out loud, Francis is the quiet part. His whole thing yeah. is the quiet part. This is the yeah, embodiment exactly of it. the quiet part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so we get we get this remarkable glimpse with Sam Francis into what is lying underneath because he just fucking says it and it gives us an e way better clue not only to the conservatives we, he even gives us a clue to the liberals 
oddly enough, mm-hmm. in his in his critique of conservatives and how they should be attacking liberals, he's saying liberals are doing this and liberals are doing that. And some of the things that he's saying about liberals, granted from his tremendously right wing racist framework, are accurate if you're able to see what he's saying. And again, I, I don't agree with him in any way. <laughs> like, don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. But we get a glimpse into. Oh, I think everybody in- understands you perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep talking. <laughs> I, I'm, I, this is all recorded. <laughs> my my next my next step is on. Uh, <laughs> from wet wired is uh is the daily wire so the daily wet from wired. wire to wire <laughs> <laughs> i'm just trying to make a transition here <laughs> let's uh let, let's skip this next clip because we just like we just played like four in a row the um yeah and we covered it so let's do yeah, let's we got go it. to this we next section let, let me read this and then you read the next one okay I think that should be a good enough sketch of Sam Francis to see exactly where he is coming from. Now you read that. Oh, okay. I see. Now we can, now we can come back to his mashup word, anarcho tyranny. He expands on it in his April, 2005 piece, synthesizing tyranny in the white nationalist publication Chronicles. See everybody, we told you we were going to come back to it. We're circling back around. What we enjoy in this country, and to a large extent in most other Western nations, is a bit more complicated than mere anarchy. It is, in fact, the unique achievement of the political genius of the modern era, what in 1992 I called anarcho-tyranny, a kind of Hegelian synthesis of two opposites, anarchy and tyranny. The elementary concept of anarcho-tyranny is simple enough. History knows of many societies that have succumbed to anarchy, when the governing authorities proved incapable of controlling criminals, warlords, rebels, and marauding invaders. He continues this from the same article. What we have in this country today, then, is both anarchy, the failure of the state to enforce the laws, and at the same time, tyranny, the enforcement of laws by the state for oppressive purposes, the criminalization of the law-abiding and innocent through exorbitant taxation, bureaucratic regulation, remember, the, the the clip at the in the in the opening was him was about Francis bitching about seatbelt laws. <laughs> yeah. Bureaucratic regulation, the invasion of privacy, and the engineering of social institutions, that's Francis bitching about affirmative action, such as the family and local schools, the imposition of thought control through quote sensitivity training and multiculturalist curricula, hate crime laws. Gun control laws that punish or disarm otherwise law-abiding citizens, but have no impact on violent criminals who get guns illegally, and a vast labyrinth of other measures. In a word, anarcho-tyranny. That sums he's it up. I mean, about, it's a great word. He's talking because about woke. It's a great word about, because it really does pull together all of these these grievances into one concept, and to say like they're doing this to you on purpose. He he's saying it's the tyranny of woke. That's that's really the the old school incarnation of it before woke emerged as as the right wing's favorite word to embody everything that they don't like. He 
has taken that and put it into anarcho-tyranny to make it sound much more sophisticated. Uh, it's got something that sounds mildly Greek at the beginning of it. Uh, it's Latin. Uh, and, uh, and, and we're off. We're, we're off to something that sounds academic when really it's just all the things that he doesn't like. His idea of this is really just somewhere between a failed state and a state that prior prioritizes shit that are his least favorite laws. I imagine him bitching about the, the New York law about soft drinks having costing an extra 10 cents or whatever it was. You, you remember when there was that whole kerfuffle? Oh yeah, absolutely. In New York. It's it's the same fucking bitching well, that that would be anarcho tyranny. I, I think Francis. Francis's idea of a failed state is the uneven application of laws. I think that that's the definition of a failed state for him, and he thinks that the that it's had it's got nothing to do with anything else. It's got nothing to do with the you know a flawed criminal justice system or a flawed conception of justice. It's got nothing to do with. Uh, a flaw, uh, a, a completely threadbare social safety net. It's got nothing to do with any of these things. It's got to do with a purposeful misapplication of laws and mi misapplication of the justice system. You know, the, the, he and so that there's he thinks that they they've decided because of their in in his words political correctness and today's words wokeness they've decided to prosecute law abiding citizens. And not prosecute criminal offenders, and as as if it's there's this there's a uh, a cabal maybe. <laughs> you know, I've heard that word before. Where have I heard that word? <laughs> so we can see this in all of this a clear demonstration of Tucker's inspiration. His use of the term anarcho tyranny is coming directly from the fringes of the farthest right. It's not the only thing that he pulls from the fringes of the far right, though. And he's doing something pretty savvy here during the presentations on, on what is now his old show on Fox. The, the, the really clever part is that he never gives attribution for these ideas. He never sources them. And that is really smart. He takes smart. it as his own. He, he, he makes it so that he'll pull words and ideas. He'll, he'll pull both the terminology and the ideas. And while he may be whistling to those groups who appreciate those words and those ideas specifically, I don't think that he's even necessarily catering to them. He's just taking their, he's just plagiarizing their material and I, making his own fucking shtick. And while he is definitely appreciative of their, of their support, he's, he's, not even necessarily trying to, I don't think he's trying to focus on pandering to them. I think what he's really doing is just trying to make his own fucking brand of, of white supremacy. That is the Tucker brand and, and make it so that it is this mainstream version of those ideas. He's just not, he's just not telling us what the manga is for his shit. Tucker samples the far right and white supremacist thinkers and then formats it for his brand. And then it becomes the new mainstream right wing vernacular. So this allows him to freely use the material without drawing any attention to that inspiration. Now, I don't completely agree that he isn't pandering or or, or playing to the far right. I, I, I think that it is at least possible without knowing the insides of Tucker's mind that 
he is absolutely intending for the farthest right white supremacist to know where to to hear these very familiar terms. So when he uses a oh, term sure. like anarcho tyranny, then the the mainstream audience and the advertisers, importantly, they don't know where that comes from. They just hear the word. It's too obscure it doesn't for them matter. to know anything about it. Well, they think they probably do think he just came up with it. You know, he coined yeah. a phrase. So nobody needs to, nobody has any inclination to look much further than that when you're talking about that crowd. But the far, the farthest right groups, the actual white supremacists that are, that are sort of uh, self-proclaiming white supremacists, they know where this stuff comes from. They know these terms. They've seen them before. They've seen them in these publications. And, you know, just exactly the same way as terms like Great Replacement. The mainstream crowd that watches Fox News doesn't know where that comes from. They just hear Tucker talking about it. But the people who know what Protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, are, then, or is, they know that word. They've seen it other places. You know, they, they've seen Great Replacement versus Great Reset. They know about the conferences. They know about the events. You know, they, they've come across this on the forums. So for them, this is an invigorating thing to hear on mainstream media. There's, there's this scene in American History X where uh, the, the old guy with the glasses, uh, Cameron Alexander, he's, he's talking to uh, he's talking to the to the um, main character and and he's saying oh yeah I, I i knew of you grew your hair out this is when he got back from from prison and and by the way uh spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched it uh the the main character doesn't doesn't particularly uh agree with white supremacy in the end of the film <laughs> but uh but he he comes back to Cameron Alexander who's who's just this this frumpy old guy with with glasses he looks a little bit a little bit better than the fucking potato head of uh of our guy Sam Francis in this episode but in the same kind of a way he's saying he's saying to him well i knew that you never really believed in all this all this shit of shaving your head and that's all aesthetics. We need to really get down to the real things that we really believe. And, and, and I always knew that, that, that you're too smart for that shit. And I feel like in this way, what Cameron was saying is kind of what Tucker is saying is, Oh, listen, I know how to put on a bow tie. He later refined it to a real tie. And, uh, Oh no, I I'm too smart for that shit. I'm not going to shave my head. I'm not going to put on a fucking KKK hood. I'm going to I'm going to say this in a clever way that that really communicates to people. I I know what this is all about. I'm too smart for that. And I feel like he's the fucking Cameron Alexander of the right wing. You want to skip this part with the Times article? We just talked about all this stuff. Yeah, we totally did. We could totally yeah. skip that. We were just talking about the great replacement Oh, I'm sorry. Why don't you just no? Actually, go second. for it. I think you have a, a take on it better than me right now. Okay, we were just talking about the Great Replacement, which was found on far right white supremacist message boards before Tucker got to it. It's credited to the white nationalist from France, uh, Renaud Camus, but the idea existed well before Camus. And again, this is not the Camus that I like. My very favorite guy, Albert Camus. So don't. 
Don't get it confused, everybody. It's, just it's, in case it, you. It's just a name. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just a name. I swear to God. And again, we have Francis talking about it years before. We have him talking about the exact same concept from the 1994 talk that got him fired from the Washington Times. What is happening in our interesting times, then, to summarize briefly, is this. A concerted and long-term attack against the civilization of white, European, and North American man has been launched. And that attack is not confined to the political, social, and cultural institutions that characterize the civilization, but extends also to the race, the biological strain or type that created the civilization and continues to carry it and transmit it today. The attack or war against white civilization sometimes, indeed often, invokes liberal ideals as its justification and as its goal. But the likely reality is that the victory of the racial revolution will end merely in the domination or destruction of the white race and its civilization by the non-white peoples. If only for demographic reasons, due to non-white immigration into the United States and the decline of white birth rates. We know from the population projections of the Census Bureau last year that by the middle of the next century, the present white majority of the United States will have dwindled to a minority in its own country. And given that fact and the increasing legitimation of anti-white racism in the United States, the situation in this country for whites is not going to get any better, to say the least. The revolution is already well advanced within the United States, which of all white majority countries on earth is already the most influenced and manipulated by the non-white enemy. These white supremacist conspiracy theories wouldn't be complete without explaining the contradictions of white Western chauvinism losing dominant status while also opposing a cabal of global elites who run the world. Usually that's the Jews. The the bad Jews, not the good ones. (laughs) Not the ones that they like. Francis explains that a new social order of competing identity politics has emerged. He says that the Marxists have framed themselves as rebels against a ruling class, and the leftists claim racism is a tool of capitalism, which we do claim that it is that, but he, he does make this accurate under, he he makes this point of that is, I think an accurate assessment of the leftist claim. So I don't think that it, it is him so far off base that he doesn't understand the leftist argument or, or the Marxist or anarchist argument that, that he he has no bearing on it and he's just so far off in his own delusions like we do see from some of these politicians on the right. No, he's like, not. He's not mischaracterizing are, the, the leftist positions. He just no, doesn't he's agree with them. nailing it. He doesn't agree with it. And that's that's part of what I find so fascinating to listen to him is that he totally nails it. We absolutely do think it's a fucking tool of class of, of, of capitalism. And he argues that the economic elites who are support, they're, they're supporting egalitarianism and what he calls, get this, environmentalism as their new envir- ideology to control society. But keep in mind, this is the mid-90s. When he says environmentalism, he's not talking about uh, climate change or saving the birds and the snails. It's not and the EPA. The, It's not the fucking EPA. When he says environmentalism, he's contrasting that 
with what he's arguing and says a number of times, which is hereditarianism, by which he means nature versus nurture. And he is saying explicitly that white people have created this Western society and it's better because of blood. <laughs> and the Marxists and the leftists think that that conditions of the environment can influence people pretty significantly. And that is what he means by environmentalism. And, and he's, he's saying this as if it's the dirtiest word that you would ever hear. These environmentalists and egalitarians who want people to be equal and also acknowledge that conditions in society influence people. The complaints about CRT and gender ideology today were the reverse racism and political correctness of yesterday. These are the terms that are swapped from what he was saying then, but the shit that he was saying then is the woke of today. The view is that equality dispossesses the dominant group of power and is itself oppression. And it has, and, and this has adopted a new vernacular and, and new specific targets. Today, it's, it's trans, transgender people. He wasn't focused on transgender people. But right now, we have a do not go to Florida warning from the NAACP, NAACP yeah. and other groups, uh, specifically LGBTQ plus groups. So uh, uh, these battles over affirmative action have been displaced by banning books that mention black people. And cultural or, Marxism, or homosexual relationships, or basically d displaying any of these often marginalized groups in a positive light. You know, like that's yeah. that's really the or, issue. Or even, or even fucking mentioning that they exist. Yeah, cultural Marxism was the propaganda term. Cultural Bolshevism, Bolshevism, and both of those are now kind of reincarnated in Peterson's fucking nonsense term. That is paradox stacked on tops of, of paradox, postmodern neo-Marxism. There's so many inversions in that in that term that it actually becomes maybe a good thing. <laughs> I I think of when when Republicans make an ad that's describing leftists and they're trying to list all these terrible things. And I'm not sure if it's a pitch for a candidate that I want. <laughs> <laughs> they want to let violent offenders out of jail. Well, yeah, we probably should treat them differently if we want them to, to stop offending violently. <laughs> I might like that candidate. <laughs> They're going to legalize all the drugs. And furthermore, they're going to give you free health care. Uh, keep going. I'm on board. He wants to open the borders. <laughs> yeah, I don't want any borders. I've, I've said that from day one. <laughs> Sean, you and I were talking about this uh, uh, yesterday when we were, when we were doing homework. We, I, I was saying that the only thing that I believe about borders is that borders should absolutely be restricted for produce. That's the only thing. Like California rules. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to make sure that we're not contaminating ecosystems. <laughs> All of these are, are pretty much just rolled into the same thing. And is anything that t detracts from the global total hegemony, hegemony, God damn it. It's a word I've said a thousand times. How can I not say it? It's anything that doesn't 
favor total hegemony of rich, white, straight men. One of the things I was thinking of when uh, I heard Francis's take on leftists having the view that racism is a tool of capitalism, it immediately, that, that has always been something that's kind of like caught with me. You know, it's sort of like it's a snag because capitalism has been around for quite some time, but societies have not always looked the way that they do currently. Like our current, the, the current society that we have right now and the the problems that we face and things like the like social media and the these out of control corporations and now obviously there's a lot of things different but we we had a very similar form of capitalism with very few differences in the 1920s preceding the the collapse of the stock market and great depression and everything like that they didn't have all the issues in society that we have now now some of that can be attributed to technology and things like social media, um, the ubiquity of of personal car ownership, the the fact that you don't have walkable cities anymore. Some of those things are features of those traits that we've picked up along the way. But something that you get out of uh, Baudrillard is his his take on that Marxist idea that racism is a tool of capitalism and the spin that he puts on it that you know, maybe to put words in his mouth that maybe he didn't exactly say, but he said close enough, seeing it more as a tool of consumerism versus simply capitalism, because capitalism on its own didn't lead to a lot of the things that we have now, especially, you know, thinking about how prone we are to be swept into marketing and how influenced we are by the movements of corporations to to spend our money places. When you look at things like the the debt that households are now holding and the amount of student loan debt, like those kinds of things, the the cost of living that we're facing now with rising rents and the the power that landlords have over tenants in a lot of places, a lot of this is not driven by simply having a capitalist economy, but the way that we've we have begun to worship capitalism. I mean, because it really takes a worshiping of capitalism in a way that we don't see capitalism anymore. You know, we don't we don't see the structure anymore. We just see what we can get out of it. We just see the things that we're supposed to buy. That's what we see from the situationists in in France in the 60s when when they were engaged in their rebellion and they were writing their works for that that blip of time that was culturally so significant they 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 said uh, beneath the paving stones there is sand there is beach they they were talking about and of course this brings it back to my favorite I mean we're 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 almost doing a full circle to the first fucking episode here but to bring it up again the society of the spectacle which is that it is the society of the spectacle where the difference between what is real and what is manufactured reality is almost indistinguishable. And most importantly, what is the difference when your experience of reality is that manufactured reality anyways? This consumerist reality that we're experiencing in late stage capitalism and, and, and global cap capitalism of, the, of, of today is in part a, a mix of many different identities that are not the simplistic Marxist idea of there's the working class and there's the employing class. And granted, Marx did have a few different, more subtle classes in between them. I understand that. But nevertheless, it, it wasn't 
it, it didn't really have a great way to explain how race factors into it in, in a meaningful way because everything was just attributed to class and the control of capital. But that just doesn't quite explain the dynamics of gender. It doesn't quite explain the dynamics of LGBTQ plus oppression. If it did, then we wouldn't have Wells Fargo and Bud Light and all these other companies doing rainbow bullshit in the month of June. That's exactly the thing that, that I'm that I'm referring to. We wouldn't have these companies paying lip service to this type of type of stuff. And, you know, doing a, a BLM campaign and putting their Instagram profile pictures black. That That is different than just capitalism. That is a product of something. It's like capitalism plus. That is, it is something else on top of capitalism. But it intersects with capitalism. And that's, and that's where it gets so confusing is that because it intersects with capitalism... I actually think it's a result of capitalism rather than an intersection of forces. I think it comes out of that directly. It's something that would not have necessarily developed on its own without capitalism. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, honestly, to me, I see everything as a con as your as your resident anarchist. Uh, I see as every everything as just different forms of hierarchies. And since I'm not particularly a fan of hierarchies in the first place, it just makes perfect sense. Oh, well, here's this hierarchy over here. Here's this hierarchy over here. And while I can see the interrelation between these things, I don't see it as necessarily causative per se, but I do see that all forms of hierarchy do require some kind of combination of dependence and social ideology, social order that is based on some kind of a theory of some people being better than others for different reasons, whether it's meritocracy or it's bloodlines in the case of, of royalty or something else like that. Uh, to me, I think that all of that's bullshit, but, but nevertheless, we do see how these things interact with each other. But to me, it's all just different fucking hierarchies. And I am not a fan of any, none of, of this would have been a problem if we wouldn't have a had a revolution. <laughs> I mean, if, if we were all, all under the benevolent rule of the good King Charles, everything would be fine. <laughs> his, his glorious sausage fingers under, under <laughs> the, the gentle chubby hand of King Charles. <laughs> and really all of this stuff does make a lot of sense in its, in its push forward right now, what we're seeing in, in Florida, we've talked about this at length is driven by fucking headlines. It's driven by, again, I mean, coming back to the spectacle. society of the spectacle. Well, you know, like, I know I just I just dropped yeah. him in here, uh, uh, Baudrillard, but he, he was operating at that same time period as a situationist. And even though I don't think he really was one, but his his version of that is, is what he called hyper-reality. And he said that, you know, this is a collection of ideas that are indistinguishable from reality. So they exist, even if they don't actually exist. Yeah. So that's, and that's exactly what we have going on in Florida. We have a made up situation. That's what the culture war is. The entire culture war is made up. It is, it is made and and, but that doesn't describe where the energy comes from, which is why this, this figure of Sam Francis is so interesting to me because he's providing the energy for it. This is where the juice is coming from. 
and it's the the this sense of grievance and grievance itself is an energy but the fear behind the grievance is the fear of losing power that is the energy you spin up all of these white people who themselves don't actually have any power they think they do because the people who do have power look like them but they themselves don't have any power i think it's both it's it's the fear of losing power even an imagined power that they don't have and the sense of alienation and trying to explain away their situation as a lower class, a lower, a low, lower socioeconomic uh, status in the, in the strata. They're, they're trying to explain away how they can be good, decent, hardworking people that are, I don't know, pick some values, whatever, but, but to view themselves as, worthy and good and decent and 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 of a higher status in some way and one way of doing that is consumerism to to buy some things and then you identify with those things i'm i'm the guy who drives the big red truck uh i'm the person who who is really into these tv shows and so forth but there's also there's also the alienation that they're experiencing from uh, from real capital concerns, from being so far in debt, from not having money, from not having achieved whatever they imagined they would achieve when they were kids, and they're not astronauts today, and in turn, and they're working at some dead end job that they hate, and they need an explanation for this, and uh, the explanation that is, I think, most obvious is well, fucking capitalism, obviously, but they need more. They need they need more meat. They can't go there. They can't go there. Because so, so much of their identity is built on hating communism. And anything that would involve a redistribution of wealth or any kind of uh, sense of, of equity would, is an affront to their idea of how society sh- should be. And really, and this is the Christian nationalist angle, how the society should be in, by God's design. And it makes it they're an impossible situation that can only erupt in it, grievance. It channels this this energy. It channels this this anger and alienation and feeling a, a lack of community, which is in part from a, a thousand variables. Uh, one of them is, is about uh, the third place, which is an upcoming episode that I'm going to talk about. But but all this feeling sense of of not having a community, not having your your sense of identity in uh uh in a a complex and packed society this is where the headlines and social media work fucking wonders because it's whatever the edgiest fucking thing is the edgiest uh uh most most shocking headline is the one that catches your attention and if you can be on the right side of that edgy headline against whatever that headline is attacking, then you're part of whatever that community is. And, and that's, and that's where Tucker Carlson is filling the same cultural void as, uh, social media influencers. They're doing the exact same fucking thing. They're trying to say some edgy shit. It works in the exact same way. Sam Francis, even in one of his talks, he mentions the exact word cultural hegemony, cultural hegemony, which comes from the Italian Marxist. It, 
that's that's an Italian Marxist word. Um, I'm forgetting his name right this second. But the fact that he mentions cultural hegemony in, in one of his talks is mind-boggling to me because we're talking about the exact same thing, which is exactly cultural hegemony. He he is an interesting figure. I mean, I can I can I can look at somebody and and read their work and think that it's detestable the product, but the process is interesting for me. How a person like Sam Francis can can be exposed to the same material, obviously demonstrate that he understands it, not go out of his way to mischaracterize it and demonize it, but come to a completely different conclusion. Of all conclusions, a white supremacist com- com- conclusion. It's very interesting. It is very, and I think it's a it's a great demonstration about how hard it is to categorize ideas and the people that are that are not just supporting them, but but really disseminating them, because there people don't fit into clear categories. You can have a very intelligent person saying things that you completely disagree with. Now there's a question of you know the the quality of that thought if it led to something. I mean. Not everybody can be correct about things. It's not like, uh, you know, there, there are correct answers, but it really depends on the foundation that you're working from. And that's what, the, that's what gets exposed to me when I come across somebody who obviously understands leftist thinking and positions, but has completely different conclusions about them, even if the underlying thought work is, is very similar and there's, a pre, there's an appreciation there. It makes it, it it exposes to me the that his foundations, his fu- fundamental values, are very, very different yeah. from mine. And and this is when when you start talking about you know the the white race is being is being eliminated and this all these things are being are an unfair dispensation and uh, where white people are losing things. What we're talking about there is somebody who has a zero sum worldview, and now. In a very real sense, we live in a planet with finite resources and limit and a finite amount of space and things like uh, a limited dr- drinking water supply and things like that. But we're not we don't come up across those those limits very often. So when we're talking a zero sum game, it's because they've impl- imposed an arbitrary limit on things. They don't think that we can all have a good amount. And, of and stuff. his worldview isn't even really based in in materialism in the sense of of how much capital is available or how much wealth is no it's more of a social hierarchy it's a social hierarchy i mean bringing it back uh, to there's no zero there's no limited uh amount of of social space everybody can have the same standing without anybody losing standing so everybody can be raised up to a standing exactly equal with everyone else without anybody being brought down. Anthony, and that's where that sense of that power dynamic comes from. And that sense Anthony of Gramsci was the Italian Marxist who I was thinking of. And he was one of the influences in critical race theory, CRT. He was one of the primary thinkers that, that helped contribute to that idea. When we have these, these cultural power dynamics, Sam Francis is not wrong in, in his evaluation of a power dynamic in these hierarchies based on different identities. What he's arguing that is in sharp contrast with the neoconservatives is that not only is there a power dynamic here, but there should be a power dynamic here. There should be the whites in charge and the whites are losing 
power. Whereas primarily what you what you typically hear from from mainstream conservatives is something like I'm rubber, you're glue kind of an argument where, oh, no, no, no. You bringing up race is in, in itself racist. You bringing up gender is in itself political and biased and partisan. But when when uh, my when when a straight white person is mentioning anything to do with being straight or white, that's not partisan. That's not political. And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. We shouldn't approach this from the colorblind approach. He's actually he's actually reproaching the conservatives for being colorblind. And he's saying, no, 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 no. We should be white and proud and maintain our dominance. And that is a sharp contrast from the from the usual arguments that we hear from even Ron DeSantis and other folks who are trying to use these dog whistles and beat around the bush about it and say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just opposed to this thing because this thing is racist against white people or it's uncomfortable. Whereas Francis is just saying, no. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwire. If you want to hear more episodes like this and get some premium episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wetwire. And if it you're, really does help. And if you're inclined sorry. to... And if you're inclined, Sorry. please. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> and if you're inclined, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to find us online, we're on Twitter and Instagram at WetWiredPod. See you next time. Later, skaters. It's Tucker Carlson. You often hear people say the news is full of lies. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter, where we are now. Twitter has long served as the place where our national conversation incubates and develops. Twitter is not a partisan site. Everybody's allowed here, and we think that's a good thing. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. We bring some other things too, which we'll tell you about. But for now, we're just grateful to be here. Free speech is the main right that you have. Without it, you have no others. See you soon.